Why did Jesus pick a man that nobody knew, nobody cared about? He was just lying there for 38 years, an invalid. And it seemed like nobody really cared, but yet Jesus seeked him out to heal him and make him whole again. Why did all of this happen? We're going to continue our study on the Pool of Bethesda. This is part two, and I'll be back right after this. Hey everyone, welcome back to Connecting the Gap. This is episode 11. Thank you guys for joining me once again. And as I mentioned in the beginning of this this week, we're at part two of this study that I started last week on the healing at the Pool of Bethesda. And we're going to continue into this. We've reached verse 6 of John chapter 5. And we're going to carry that on here in just a little bit before I get started. Um, welcome once again. Thank you guys for checking me out. Just please share this and subscribe to all my different channels. Uh, you go to connectingthegap.net and you can see everywhere that I'm pushing this out to. I've got it in video and audio form both on some different podcasting apps. And then of course my YouTube channel has the most material on it. And you can find that address on my website at connectingthegap.net. So. Thank you guys once again, and I really appreciate your support and helping me get this out there where everybody can see what we got going on here. You can be a part of that. So we're going to pick up and just get right into this this week. Got a little bit of extra, some more material here to get through, and so we're going to try to get to that. Uh, we've, Like I said earlier, we've, we've reached verse 6 of chapter 5 in John. So um, we're going to continue this on. Last week we talked about some characteristics of this man that was laying here paralyzed by the pool of Bethesda. And of course, uh, we know that that pool is the one that, uh, as the Bible states, the angels would trouble the waters and the first person into it would be healed. And this man had been down by this pool for 38 years trying to get healed, but he could not get into the water because nobody was there to help him. So if you go back and watch the first part of this, if you haven't done so or refresh your memory, uh, we went through seven characteristics of this man that we've kind of pulled out of the scriptures as far as to this man's character. So now we are up to verse 6 where Jesus asked this man if he wants to get well. So we'll start with John chapter 5 verse 6. It says, When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? This question that's in this verse, I've pondered about this, and the first thing that comes to my mind is, is you know, why in the world would you ask somebody that's sick if they want to get well, especially if they're seriously ill and they've been this way for so many years? It just seems like an odd question because you know that they probably do want to get well. Yes would seem to be the obvious answer to that. But I think in this situation, I think that Jesus wanted more than a yes or no answer. He wanted to assess this man's desire that he had within him to get well. And I think he was also trying to assess this man's faith and kind of see where he stood at um, as far as what he would be open to revealing to Jesus about who he truly was inside. 
John Wimber, he's the founder of the Vineyard Fellowship Movement and a teacher in a class called Signs, Wonders, and Church Growth at the Fuller Theological Seminary. And he did this in the early 1980s. He taught students to question those who came to them for healing. Too often, we assume that a person wants one thing while they just aren't where we imagine them to be. Since I've learned this, that when people come to me for prayer or come forward in a service, I usually like to ask people, what do you want God to do for you? It helps me discern how to pray for them. And as I pray to God for wisdom, occasionally I get guidance on what direction to pray for them also while I'm doing that. If you really think about it, not all sick people really want to be healed or do they want to surrender their lives to Christ, even though that is their true need. You know, beyond the sickness that we have in our life physically, we also have the spiritual sickness that we have if we do not know Christ as our Savior. And so a lot of times when you come up to people and want to try to help them become a better person and become a Christian and that kind of thing, they may tell you that they want to, but they may not really, deep down inside, really want that because they just don't feel like they're ready um, at this point in time. So sometimes their sickness puts them in a place where they get lots of attention. For example, Jesus set the ministry example for us to ask. The invalid in our story didn't exactly answer the question that Jesus asked of him. Rather, he explained why he hadn't been healed. As mentioned above, his answer tells us something about his character and his faith. So all the characteristics that we went through last week of him being old, dependent, a complainer, a blamer, sinner, ungrateful, and disloyal, and unrepentant, the way that he handled this question when Jesus asked him this, it kind of gives us an idea of, you know, why he was this type of a person. So, in verse 6 of John chapter 5, why do you think Jesus asked the invalid if he wanted to get well? Why is it important for us not to make assumptions, but to seek discernment about people's needs before we pray for them? You know, I just, I think that we need to find out when we come up to someone, do you really want to be healed? What kind of faith do you have that this is going to happen if we pray for this? If they don't really have the faith that it's going to happen, it may not really do much good to pray for that situation because we know that we are healed by faith and we know that, you know, when Jesus died on that cross and, and took those stripes for our sins and for our healing, that we have to have a faith in him that he is going to do this whenever we pray for these things. And so I think that in a manner that Jesus asked this man, then we need to replicate that when we ask people if they would like to have some prayer in their life for situations that are going on, if it's healing or financial or whatever it may be. We need to ask them probably before we get too deep into it, unless God just reveals to us what it is, we need to ask them, what is it you would like for us to pray for you for? Would you like for us to pray for you in these situations? And kind of, you know, fill them out and see exactly where their faith is at. As we move on to verse 8 and 9, Jesus doesn't pray for the man. He commands him with a word of power. In verse 8 it says, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he walked. When we see this command, get up, which that's in the NIV and ESV, in our NRSV, he says stand up. In the King James, he says rise. We see this command in a number of places in the Gospels. 
What this word means is to awaken, then rise, get up. Here in a command to evoke movement from a fixed position, such as get up, you know, come. He's telling him to do something, to move, and, and to do something he couldn't do before. We see it with the paralytic when the ceiling of a home was broken up. And this story is in Matthew chapter 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5. And then we also see it in a man in, with the, in the synagogue with a shriveled hand in Mark 3 and Luke 6. Jairus' daughter, who is raised from the dead in Mark 5 and Luke 8. Blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. And the crippled man at the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts chapter 3. Is the man obedient to Jesus' command? Well, we're not sure. We know that he certainly got to his feet at once or immediately, as the scripture says. He picked up his pallet and he began to walk. I think, but, but can't really prove, that when Jesus spoke, this man's legs must have suddenly strengthened and he found himself standing. It wasn't so much a matter of obedience or faith, but an instinctive response to a sudden healing and the realization that as he began to stand, that he indeed had the, truth, the strength to do so. Perhaps his attempt to stand was even the trigger for the healing. You know, we read about the ten lepers who were healed by Jesus at one point. He told them to go show yourself to the priest. This is in Luke chapter 17, verse 14. And as they went, they were cleansed. The two other elements of the healing were to pick up his mat and walk. The mat or pallet could have been a bed or a couch, or perhaps maybe a stretcher that his friends usually carried him on. The man didn't need to be there any longer, so he took up his pallet and he began to walk home. But of course, when he started to do this, that's where he started getting into some trouble after he took off and was carrying his mat away. We read in the news that in certain Middle Eastern countries, there are self-appointed men who police how women must cover themselves or even drive a car by themselves. John tells us that this healing took place on the Sabbath day. Apparently in Jerusalem, some of the strict Jews, probably Pharisees, who interpreted the law quite strictly, they saw this man carrying his pallet home, and they took it upon themselves to confront this man. In verse 9b, the second half of verse 9, it says, The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law pre prevents you from carrying your mat. The law indeed was clear about observing the Sabbath. The fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That's Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Of course, the intent was that God's people should rest on the Sabbath and not pursue their normal work. But then the lawyers took over. There is a large tractate in the Mishnah that details just what is allowed and disallowed on the Sabbath. Accordingly, it was allowable to carry a man on a bed on the Sabbath, but not to carry a bed without a man in it. So there was kind of a, a little trick there to how that was okay or not okay. As you may recall, Jesus was severely criticized for healing on the Sabbath. And this was in Luke 12, John 5, and John 9. And it was also allowing his disciples to eat heads of grain they plucked as they walked. That was quote-unquote harvesting. And that was in Matthew chapter 12. Carrying loads for your work was indeed prohibited, such as stated in Jeremiah 17 and Mark 11, 
but a healed man carrying home his pallet, that's not work. The healed man's defense is to shift blame from himself to Jesus. His exact words, he told me to do it. In verse 11 of John chapter 5, it says, But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? His answer in verse 13, The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. It's interesting that even through this healing, when this took place, when Jesus told him to get up and take his mat and walk, and he did, this man never even asked Jesus what his name was. It's like he didn't even care. He was just selfishly glad that he had his healing and that he didn't have to sit there by that pool anymore. You would think that he would have been extremely thankful and thanked Jesus, but apparently his only thought was himself. He didn't turn to Jesus with thanksgiving for what he had done for him. The text says in the NIV that Jesus slipped away. The NRSV says he disappeared. In King James it says he conveyed himself away, or he had withdrawn, as the ESV says. The verb ichnuo means to draw away from, turn aside, or withdraw. This is in keeping with Jesus' style of not trying to use the spectacular to promote himself. He often told people not to tell anyone about his miracle. And if you've you know, read through several of the miracles in the New Testament, there's many times Jesus told them not to tell them who did it. He just provided the miracle and, and it happened for those people. And you can read some of these stories in Matthew 8, Mark 1, Mark 3, Mark 5, Mark 7. There's many other places where you can read stories where this happened. And he also told his disciples not to reveal that he was the Messiah. That was in Matthew chapter 16. So we know that even though Jesus was going around doing all these miracles and everything that took place while he was on the earth, he had no desire to draw the glory to himself. He was trying to draw the glory to his Father, God up in heaven. And when I think about that, it's crazy how unlike him that we really are, how selfish as, as people, you know, if we go out and do these big miracles and, and all that kind of thing, our humanistic tendencies are to want the glory for that. And we want to take all the credit for what's happening because, you know, we seek the praise of men a lot of times. Free publicity that comes with the spectacular is something that we, in some cases, we, we want that. We want to exploit the, the public relations value of anything that we can. On the other hand of this, though, we do know that God often uses miracles to draw people to Christ. Many mass healing campaigns overseas have swelled from word-of-mouth testimony, and many have come to Christ as a result. Our point with this here is to say that we need to check our motive. Whenever something like this takes place, God gives us a miracle or He reveals something to us that we otherwise wouldn't have known, we need to check our motives in all of this. If it's pride, and this is, which is often one of our hidden motives, we're not emulating Christ. We need to get ourselves out of the way, get that pride out of there, and make sure that Christ is glorified in anything that takes place. Later, perhaps, that next day, or the, that day or the next day, we're not really told, Jesus sees this healed man in the temple. Perhaps he came to offer a thanks of offering for his healing, possibly. We're not sure. In verse 14 of chapter 5, it says, Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. 
stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So here we notice that Jesus spots the man in the temple, not the other way around. The man's not there looking for Jesus, but Jesus spots him. Even though there's probably a crowd of people around Jesus, because everywhere Jesus went, we knew that he had a crowd of people usually following him and surrounding him. Well, Jesus sees this man, so he goes in and he confronts this man about his sin. We don't know what his sin was, whether if it was slander, cheating, a sexual sin, we're not real sure, because we're not told. But it doesn't seem to be some kind of just a, a garden variety of weakness, just something small. But it seems to be like it's something serious because of the way that Jesus approached this. Jesus commands him to, to stop, to stop his sins and stop sinning. The verb is in the present imperative, suggesting that the man is continuing to do this sin. It's not something in the past that he's not doing anymore. And it's not necessarily something that he might be getting himself to now to do in the future. It's something that's been a continuous thing in his life and he's never stopped doing it. It's not just a slip or a single occurrence. This is something that's his way of life. It's the way that he lives on a daily basis. Jesus tells him of the consequences if he doesn't stop, lest something worse may happen to you. That's verse 14 of John chapter 5. So you might ask in this situation, well, what could be worse than being crippled for 38 years? You know, that's, that's a horrible sentence to have upon yourself to begin with. Well... What could be worse than that is us going to hell. We know we have a choice to go to heaven or we have a choice to go to hell. How do we define the difference between the two of which direction we're going to go? It's how we live our life. It's how we work our repentance to Christ and how we accept forgiveness for our sins and have faith in Him that He is just and willing to forgive us of our sins. We have to go through all of that to be sure that we are going to have that forever and throughout eternity that Jesus refers to when he talks about us going to heaven and that he has prepared a place for us. So we have to take care of those things in our life if we're going to make sure that we don't have these issues come up that's going to keep us from getting that eternal life that he's promised. So we're going to go ahead and finish this up next week. We're going to do, make this a three-part study on this. I don't want to miss any points here. And hopefully you guys are, are gleaning some stuff from this that maybe you never thought about. Um, before as you've read this story um, as you know the story is only like 16 verses long or something like that it's a very short story and there's just at, on the surface of it it doesn't look like, look like there's really much there but there's a lot of truths as, as you can see that we're able to pull from this and, and next week we're going to get into some of those truths uh, as far as some lessons for the disciples that were learned from this and some stuff that we can apply in our life as we finish this up this next week. So thanks again, guys, for joining me this week. Um, hopefully you've enjoyed this little Bible study as we've been going through it. We're going to, uh, of course, finish it up next week. Please subscribe to any of my channels. Check out my YouTube. Um, you can get to all of that stuff on my website at connectingthegap.net. You guys have a great week, and I will talk to you next time.